Hey, it's Isaac. As you might have noticed, last week we did a double episode on the Guggenheim's controversial new show, Art and China After 1989. This week we're bringing you an episode from the archives that looks at making it in the art world if you're not a rich kid. Next week we'll be back with a new episode on the art market with author Don Thompson. Until then, enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan. This week, I'm joined by two very special guests. Uh, Naomi Guerrero, an art lover and financial advisor at New York University. Hi, Naomi. Hi. And Sandra Jackson Dumont. Dumont, I got French all of a sudden. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Sandra Jackson Dumont, the chair of education at the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York. Hello. Hello. And of course, uh, Anna Louise Sussman, our art market editor. Hi, Isaac. And Naomi and Sandra are joining us this week because they are two of the centerpieces of your article, Anna, um, which explores the role of wealth and inequality in sort of shaping who is able to work in the art world. So, Anna, maybe you can just talk quickly about why you decided to write this story now. Sure. Um, I'd seen a story in the New York Times that showed that um, people in their early 20s living in New York who were um, working in the art and design fields were the most likely amongst their peers to receive financial assistance from their parents. Um, Over half of them reported getting some help um, compared with 40% of their peers. And they also received the largest dollar sum of money, um, which is $3,600 a year compared to an average of $3,000 a year for for their peers in other fields. So I thought it'd be interesting to look at whether um, that signifies anything about who's able to work in the art world. Um, I think there's been a lot of efforts, very visible efforts and very laudable efforts to make sure that the art world is more uh, visibly inclusive, you know, um, featuring shows about women artists and artists of color. Uh, But I thought the issue of class was a little bit underexplored, so I thought it was a timely topic that we could um, look at. Now, Naomi, your voice kind of begins, begins this piece, and I'm wondering if you could, you know, talk about Uh, your background and experience with with this issue as it applies to you personally? So I, as I I said in the article, I grew up, I'm from the Bronx. I grew up in New York and lived here my whole life. I traveled back and forth between the Dominican Republic and um, the city. I went away to college, majored in art history, and then just, you know, kind of learned through history the place that New York City has in in the in art history and contemporary art history and just in, in art history in general, which was really surprising to me because I had never. I think I went to the uh, Museum of Natural History in second grade. That's where I got my first nosebleed. That's like the only time I remember <laughs> under the T Rex. That's the, the the museum that I went to, and so um, part of it was I think the language barrier of my parents being uh, recent immigrants. They didn't really venture out side of the neighborhood that we lived in and so you know once once I I graduated from college during college I um I interned at El Museo del Barrio I I worked at Disney in their animation I you know I tried to push myself and um and go to places and do things that I had never done before it was really scary but it was fun because I wanted different experiences within the art world especially because I had literally no idea what that um what that industry was like so when I got to the city I started with interning and I began working for an arts nonprofit 
um, that was my first job. And I was uh, very, very uh, overwhelmed. It was a lot of responsibility. Um, it was very, very little pay. Um, and I realized that well, two of my colleagues were unpaid and they seemed to have more responsibility than I did. Mm -hmm. And I didn't anticipate the, I mean, first of all, I think you can't talk about class without talking about race. It was a social justice organization and I was one of maybe three people on staff that were of color um, and the only person, um, me and, some, and someone else, we were the only people of color in kind of executive meetings and meetings that were creative direction or that kind of thing. I didn't really have a voice. I was just there taking notes, um, kind of like a shadow. And it was, so, it was so alienating kind of because, you know, there's a sentence in the article where it's like sometimes I felt unsafe in my neighborhood, but the truth is that I felt more often I felt unsafe in the office. Mm. because it was not a safe place for me because it was just a world that I didn't know and it was a world that didn't care to know me. That's how it felt mm. because um, in these meetings and in these interactions, they seem really forced and they seem like, okay, we want your opinion, but you know, not today, not right now. We're not ready for it. You know, And, and I think that that's something that, that everyone kind of goes through when you, when you have entry-level jobs. But when you add the layer of class and race it just it makes it like you and I are not the same um we have very different experiences you know um Sandra I know at the Met you're working to make a very uh, different environment a more inclusive and welcoming environment um from what Naomi described can you talk a little bit about what you're doing there and how you feel like that relates to making um a more representative artistic community overall Sure. Um, one, I want to acknowledge Naomi and her amazing um, kind of forthrightness. And I think that the this challenging thing um, that we deal with in the art world is that, um, I mean, she is not in the minority. I mean, I was her 10 or 15 years ago, um, maybe more like 17, 18. Um, <laughs> but um, but but I think the you know she's right when you talk about race and class they are interconnected and um, and I think at the Met um, there's been this this work has been going on for many many years um, and I mean people like Laurie Stokes Sims come out of the Met Thelma Golden as I mentioned in an article was a high school intern at the Metropolitan Museum of Art twice um, Glenn Ligon took drawing classes at the Met. But the question is, how did they find their way there? And then how does one get supported beyond that point of entry experience? And so I'm a big proponent of internships, but you can intern yourself to death without a placement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what Naomi's speaking to, this idea that, you know, you actually need to make a livable wage. And when you tie that into um, some of the issues that young people have to make decisions about. So I could intern um, at a place for free. Um, or um, I can intern and get paid and contribute to my household. I also don't want to, you know, kind of mix up or confuse people that every brown person or person of color is in the same boat. There are brown people that actually are people of means and wealth and contribute and they're on boards and they're engaged. And so, but I feel sometimes when we talk about brown people in the art world or black people in the art world or, you know, people of color in general in the art world, we get kind of placed into one category. The people that actually don't have a lot of information about the art world and the people that actually don't have the resources to contribute viably to the economic strata of the art world. In many cases, we're choosing not to participate because in some cases, those places that 
you know, should be for us don't seem to be socially for us. So, you know, like maybe you were talking earlier about like, you know, white wine and plastic cups, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, the reality is that maybe we don't want white wine and plastic cups. We want to have a different, we want music and we want to dance. We don't want to stand around and talk. Or there's Mm -hmm. some things that actually socially don't vibe. So I think at the Met, what's happening is that we're trying to build even greater awareness about paid internships we have. We have... 40 paid college and university internships annually. Um, And then more that are unpaid. Um, What we try to do is match people that need those resources with the resources. Um, We also have a couple that are dedicated to people that are under-resourced or underrepresented in the field. Now, high school interns, there are 75 paid high school internships at the Met every year. And most people, a lot of people don't know about it. I shouldn't say most, but a lot of people don't know that these exist. But I can tell you that the majority of the young people participating in that program at the Met represent people of color. And I can tell you that most museums, teen programs across the country have some of the most diverse audiences in the country. I mean, in terms of museum programs and youth programs. What happens, though, after they leave those point of entry programs? Like, it becomes, you know, the challenge is that it becomes less and less diverse. And we have to talk about that. Like, what is that pipeline that gets people into different places? That doesn't mean that someone's a high school intern at the Met, and then they become a college intern at the Met, and then they become a fellow at the Met, and then they get employed at the Met. I'm not talking about that straight pipeline, because then you'd have everyone that has spent their lifetime at one institution. Mm-hmm. And we keep talking about it that way as opposed to saying, Sandra and Naomi interned at the Studio Museum, and I did. Um, and then I went and worked somewhere else, and I did. And then I got a fellowship in Marxist theory at the Whitney, and I did. And then Naomi came, and she went to the fellowship, the internship, the blah, blah, blah. But all of those experiences make for something pretty viable. But those programs don't have a ton of marketing dollars to tell people about them. So folks have to find their way to those programs. Um, Whereas, you know, exhibitions, um, other things have marketing dollars attached to them. And I think that that's a huge issue. You mentioned the pipeline. And I know when we spoke, um, you talked about the mentorship that comes, the mentoring that's part of um, interning, uh, exposing people to different parts of the museum, mm-hmm. exposing them to other institutions and colleagues. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that um, has worked so far in practice? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. So our college and university interns, they have a seminar every week and they meet everyone from Tom Campbell, the director of the museum, and hear about his perspectives on running an institution so that they could actually see themselves possibly running an institution. They get to meet the head of security so that if they actually want to, you know, look at that field, they can do that. They meet with curators, they meet with educators, they meet with, you know, cultural producers, programmers. But the other thing is that they, I mean, they even meet with our head of legal our legal department mm-hmm. so they are learning holistically about the institution but the other thing that they do is that inside of the museum there are some of our interns um that we see need a bit more support, they're also paired with mentors that are not their direct supervisors. We have a group of interns that um, come from underrepresented backgrounds and they are paired with someone else that may not, that looks like them and may not actually be in the field that they are totally interested in, but that person can talk to them about other kinds of experiences socially that might happen. Naomi, I wanted to ask, I mean, some of the resources and the programming that Sandra describes that they have at the Met, would something like that have maybe helped um, 
keep you in the art world full time at the way you were working? Or um, can you tell us a little bit more about your career trajectory and where you're hoping to go next also? Sure. Um, I participated in something called the New York Arts Intern Program, and that's where I got my first paid internship during the summer. And um, it was so wonderful. It was one of the best summers I've ever had because every week we went to a different museum. And for the first time, I went to the Queens Museum. For the first time, I went to all these different museums in the city, and I learned, and I met people who worked there. And that was over a summer. And of course, then I went back to DePaul um, to finish. But it's kind of what Sandra was talking about. Like, how do you translate your experience in internships? Because you can intern your life away into a paid position where you're at an institution and you're contributing like part of everything that you learned while you intern. You had a couple of paid jobs, though, and then you decided to not stay yeah. in the art field. Can you yes. tell us a little bit more about sure. the decision? Um, so... I first I worked for um, the arts nonprofit. Then I worked for an artist. It's kind of like what Sandra's talking about. Then I worked for an artist studio um, in their registrar. And then I worked for a gallery as a gallery assistant. And there I was there for about uh, almost two years, a year and a half-ish. Um, and then that's when I started applying to graduate programs. And I said, okay, well, it looks like if I want to move up anywhere, I have to have some kind of graduate degree and make the connections while I'm in grad school. So when I decided to officially like leave the art world and say, okay, was because you go to college, right? And when you're first generation, you have all these pressures from your family. They they kind of expect you like, okay, you graduated, you're supposed to come and make money and help us. So when I, what, every time I have, I had a conversation with my family about what it was that I wanted to do, it was kind of this expected, um, and, and again, I don't want to speak for every person of color, every person that comes from a working class New York family. This is my experience, and if it applies to you, great, or if you can relate to it, awesome, but I don't want this to be like a blanket, you know, um, speaking for all. But there's this pressure, right, to provide. There's this pressure to assist. There's this pressure. Hey, you went to college for four years. You prepared yourself. You have a baseline of income that you, that I don't have because I didn't get an education. So that wasn't true for me because there was a lot of instability in terms of, okay, one year I was making 33. The other year I was making $12 an hour. And sometimes I was making it, sometimes I wasn't. It was very kind of unstable. And once um, family emergencies came up and I couldn't do anything about it, I wanted to get rid of this uncertainty and instability in my life. And that's why I decided to pursue a higher education and, and, and you know, kind of get out of that, like, cycle. So I decided, you know, the art world right now, it's not for me because I can't afford to um, not know. Uh, I can't afford that up and down and that hustle like I couldn't do it anymore because I was exhausted and I was drained of trying to prove myself over and over again knowing that I was capable and knowing that I had great things to offer that I could potentially you know really really make an impact at work but I wasn't given that chance because I was so worried about surviving and making sure that like I had that I had a job that would allow me to like sustain myself and probably help um, part of my family. Sandra, do you have any advice for someone who had to step back from the art world but is looking to get back in? What kind of career strategies or paths there are to re-enter? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I'm very much like Naomi. I mean, I came from an v- extremely similar background. Um, I think my first year 
um, having an actual paid job, I probably made more than my family all put together in a year. You know, I'm the first to go to college. And so <clears throat> this idea of, I want to say a word about what Naomi said earlier, this idea of, you know, truly um, feeling unsafe in a work environment. It's not, in some cases for me, it wasn't necessarily about how I felt in terms of my juxtaposition to other people, but it was literally about if I didn't perform appropriately, then my welfare was affected. Where someone else can have a highly opinionated perspective and they're, because they have a safety net, they're, they, they're taking risks in ways that someone that doesn't have that safety net <clears throat> doesn't. And so I'm interested in, you know, screw the safety net, you know, I mean, but how do you screw the safety net, you know? And so I think that in Naomi's case, or for someone in her situation, um, going back to school or doing the things she did increases further debt, right? And so you end up being in that situation. The key, honestly, and I can't believe I'm going to say this, but um, but the key is also networking. It is truly being connected, being in the right place. Some of it is timing. You know, I'd like to believe I'm divinely anointed or divinely protected because, you know, despite there being so many people that came before me and worked harder or as hard as I do, and I work hard, um, they haven't had the benefit of the things that I've had access to. And you feel like networking was the key? I think that, that networking is one key. Mm -hmm. um, networking coupled with knowledge and experience. There are lots of people that unlike Naomi, that haven't had um, any experience, and they want to have the job that someone who has had extreme experience has and you just those don't go together and school does not represent experience you have to have school is knowledge and tuning fine-tuning your information um, and experience is having real life experience so how do you take the book work and put it into real life work um, and sometimes people have one or the other and we need to to really foster both happening and we need to treat internships as if they are a part of the academic experience not internships as a job. They're not a job. But I'm also kind of curious because, you know, one of one of the problems is just like low salaries generally. I'm kind of, you know, sort of zooming out beyond sort of saying this is what you as an individual can do. Mm -hmm. When you sort of look at the sort of broader systemic problems that are maybe beyond any one person to, to network their way out of, what, what kind of landscape do you see? Well, that's the peril of the nonprofit structure, right? And so, you know, it's, it's you could have... What we're seeing right now is the for-profit industry doing exactly the same kind of very humanizing um, social justice work that the nonprofit industry has been doing forever and making more money at it than the nonprofit industry. Um, and that's, you know, the same thing with creativity and innovation. That has always been the place of the art the arts world. Now it's the place of the technology world. I don't want to put them in juxtaposition to each other, but look at the parody there or the the issues that 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 you know someone in the tech industry makes exponentially more than someone in the art world or in the nonprofit sector and it's the same thing and so i think there's something to be said about that um i think that 
if people in our communities believe in the arts and believe in the power of the arts to affect change, they've been at the front forefront of every social justice movement in history. If they believe that we need more thinking, thriving people who actually care about who sits next to them, then they actually should vote with their feet, attend these institutions, be a part of them, um, not practice a level of critique from a distance. If you want to critique something, participate. And I also believe that you know, we can affect the amount of resources that get allocated to these institutions on a local level. So vote locally to support these organizations. And then every dollar counts. I mean, seriously, every dollar counts at a nonprofit. Um, at, it, it just does. Um, one thing that I just wanted to say, I'm kind of jumping off of what Sandra said as like the idea of networking. I think the most powerful thing that you can do in this industry is network. Um, in the past, kind of like just based off of going what happened to me in my career, I um, when I went into grad school, part of the reason why I worked for NYU was because I wanted tuition remission. Um, I'm, I'm a hustler. I'm always trying to figure out a way. Like, And so I was like, okay, well, I can work for the university and get tuition remission and not be totally in debt for getting my master's. So that's why I started working there. Um, but then, uh, you know, after a year, I was like, okay, well, it's time I got my confidence back because I lost a lot of it when, when I kept job hopping and kind of trying to figure out where to go. Um, and I started networking. I started going to these events for a long time. I didn't because I was just so like low and I don't know. I was like, I wanted to reassess myself and my goals. And I was like, you know, who am I? All those, I had like a quarter life crisis. Um, (laughs) and so, uh, after I did that, then I started, you know, going back out again. And then that's when I like ran into Sandra and I ran into all these people who actually like really, really want to help, you know, and they really, really want to, um, be that, that kind of, you know, that key to open the door for you or just say, Hey, come, come and hear this talk and let's talk. And, and <clears throat> the more people see you out and see you trying and understand that you have an interest and even beyond an interest that this is your career, right? And you have things to say and you have thoughtful conversations, people will remember you. And so it was more of just like taking a break from actually working in the art world and reassessing myself and reimagining what a career in the art world really means for me instead of me being like, okay, I want to be a curator and I have to do this and this and this and that if the, if this is what I want to be. Even studying like the career paths of someone like Thelma Golden or, you know, like the big, you know, people that kind of we look up to and and you mentioned one difference nowadays is social media Mm -hmm. your blog do you want to mention the name of your blog and your twitter handle sure um so it's gallerygirl.nyc on twitter it's gallerygirlsnyc that came about because I every time I tried to explain to my family, it was kind of hard for me to explain. So I started writing in both English and Spanish. And everything that I write is in both languages. So anytime that I write about a show or an exhibition or an artist or whatever, I write it in both languages. I studied in the Dominican Republic, too. So I figured, hey, I can send my dad a link and he can read it. Um, even though he can read in English too, but I feel like it, it would make more sense to him. Um, and so that's that's how that materialized and more because I just didn't see a Spanglish voice out there. So I was like, okay, I'll be it. Um, and just finding like my place and feeling really comfortable. And one last thing is that I went to Carrie James Marshall Creative Convening that at the Met and it was amazing. It was just so inspirational 
to hear him speak about um, failure. That was like one of my favorite things because he talked about, you know, he, I, I feel like the question was trying to pigeonhole him into saying like, how do you feel when you fail? And he said, you know, I think failure is a failure of imagination, a failure of possibility. Um, and that just doesn't exist for me because there's always a solution. And so that was that was kind of what happened to me when I was like, you know what, I need to take a break. I'm gonna I'm gonna have like a a good salaried like place where I can get my apartment and you know live my life comfortably for a year or two, and then figure out okay, reassess, make connections, and and figure out what it is that I want to do. So it's like taking that time for yourself and having enough faith in yourself and respect for yourself to know that hey, I'm not being respected here. I am not giving my full potential and I'm suffering like you know mentally emotionally all these things um I need some time and it's okay it's okay there's no competition but for me I always felt like there was because you know I don't know pressure I think one of the sad things when it's amazing that's a great story it's the story of so many people but makes what makes me sad is that if, if Naomi had had the network that I had when I was experiencing that then she probably wouldn't have left the art world. And honestly, she actually hasn't left the art world. She's in it, um, but she's found a different voice in it. Um, and so you have to stop saying you like left the art world because you actually haven't. Um, <laughs> That's my mistake. Um, yeah. yeah, and um, and I also think that people find what they need when they start to find themselves more effectively, right? And I think that's the brilliance of like that of Care James Marshall, but also that day to have a stage full of people that look like me, look like Naomi, look like you know a, a range of voices across disciplines talking about how they have moved through the world and what does actual, um, what does labor look like? What does it feel like in your body? What does it look like to achieve something that you have said is your level of success, not some industry standard? And I think that, I mean, it, it breaks my heart to know that there are people that leave the art world. Be and, and the sole reason in this case, I feel, is because she didn't have the safety net of professionals around her to say, oh, wait, there's another opportunity. There's another opportunity over here. Or maybe you could think of it this way. Thanks so much to our guests, Anna, Sandra, and Naomi for joining us this week. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. See you guys next time. Our producer this week, as always, associate editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free.